Hi, this is Ellie Kushner from Dancewell Podcast, and today I'm talking with Sarah Wilcoxon and Brittany Benoit about partnering in a Me Too era. Uh, Sarah Wilcoxon is an assistant professor in the Department of Theater and Dance at Missouri State University. She received her MFA in Dance from Florida State University and an MS in Communication from Illinois State University. At MSU, Sarah is the dance representative for the musical theater program and she directs the department's wellness program. She's a STOT certified Pilates instructor who is passionate about promoting a culture of wellness in dance and performance. And Brittany Benoit is a graduate of the Missouri State University Dance Program, a certified massage therapist, and STOT trained Pilates instructor. Her dance research includes transnational fusion and collaboration, somaticized cultural experiences through dance, and integrated modalities of cross-training and soft tissue therapy for dancers. And we're talking about partnering in a Me Too era, which I'm excited to discuss because I think a lot of times in the realm of dance wellness, we talk about biological components like um, injury or exercise physiology or nutrition. And you know we're getting better about talking about psychological issues like um, stress or eating disorders. But I think the social components are largely neglected in dance science research. And um, certainly in this moment, we're starting to see the importance of those things and how they affect our wellness. So Sarah and Brittany, I'm so excited to talk to you. Thank you for joining me. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us, Ellie. Um, So this interview came about because I heard you speak at the Dance Science and Somatic Educators Conference in Buffalo this summer. And you spoke about a class that you designed and co-taught um, that was a partnering class, a dance partnering class. So could you just um, talk us through what that class was and um, how it sort of came to be? Sure, sure. sure. I'll start. I'm Brittany. Um, Sarah and I have an overlap in dance and Pilates. Um, so we decided to put our heads together and utilize our unique backgrounds in massage therapy and communication to plan this course um, unique to this specific moment in time, um, and it's in the midst of the Me Too movement. This is Sarah here. So the phrase Me Too was actually coined in 2006 by Tarana Burke as a way to help women who'd survived sexual violence put voice to their experience. But in the semester right before our course ran, here's just a list of some things that were swirling in the pop culture world. A chief at CBS resigned amid sexual misconduct allegations. Dr. Christine Blasey Ford accused and testified that then-Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh committed sexual assault against her in high school. Bill Cosby was sentenced to jail time for drugging and sexually assaulting women. The House Ethics Committee called for changes to the system for reporting sexual harassment and abusive workplace behavior on Capitol Hill. Neil deGrasse Tyson was investigated for sexual assault and the investigation of rape and sexual misconduct allegations against Harvey Weinstein continued into their second year. Um, So, of course, our dancing doesn't exist in a vacuum, and with the Me Too movement swirling all around us, we began to question how and why we teach partnering. Um, So we just really were examining that. And Sarah and I decided to leverage our backgrounds in massage and communication to focus on the intention behind touch and consider questions of consent in partnered dance um, as it applies in the classroom. Our primary goal was to create a student-driven community based on first and foremost consent and mutual respect. 
And so we used a consent contract and we focused on touch and practicing calculated risk-taking. So um, the consent contract was inspired by a woman named Kathleen Ray in Toronto. We started the first week of class by presenting the students with a consent contract that we had written based on Kathleen's work. And we used the first several class periods to rewrite and adapt the contract based on the student input, students' input and expectations. And throughout the semester, we had several check-ins with this contract. And sometimes we encouraged the check-in and sometimes students called for a check-in or a rewrite. Um, but the primary aspect of the contract that I think stood out to most people when we presented this at the Dance Science and Somatics Educators Conference was the idea of practicing saying no. Um, and the ability to say no was in the contract and also an expectation that if someone says no to you, declines a dance or a partnered experience with you, that we won't take that personally. Um, and then we also structured in plenty of opportunities in the coursework and the warm-up for them to practice declining dances and declining touch. And then we also um, acknowledged that partner dance includes more than just this verbal and nonverbal communication, and a huge chunk of it has to do with touch. Um, and it can be an effective way to trans touch, can be an effective way to transmit emotions and intention. And it has a huge impact on human development and socialization. And so I brought in some research from Dr. Tiffany Field at the Touch Research Institute um, about human development and touch. So that kind of contextualized that for the students in the, in the classroom and the importance of touch. So yeah, my background, this is Sarah here in communication, kind of talking about consent and using some explicit communication tools to work with consent. And then Brittany bringing her background from massage to talk about touch. I think those things came together to allow for student-directed calculated risk-taking throughout the semester. So because we led the class from a somatic standpoint, the students were already accustomed to sort of checking in with their physical and emotional presence in the classroom. And we designed each physical exercise to be progressive, and students were encouraged only to progress if they felt safe and comfortable doing so. And just going off of that, Sarah and I presented the progression of each exercise and then provided a whole lot of time and space for dancers to talk through each progression and communicate with one another in small group settings. And so this helped with their communication skills and their consent skills, and by the end of the semester, they were noticeably, noticeably better at providing this external feedback to one another and articulating their needs so they could do higher and higher risk um, activities without uh, feeling super vulnerable or uncomfortable in the moment. So they really enhanced their communication that way and felt safe. <laughs> we think at least. We think. <laughs> we hope. Yeah. I mean, it sounds so amazing. There's so many things to unpick here. I want to start just with a few clarifying points. So um, you talked, Brittany, about the tools you brought from massage and some of the research on touch and how touch is not just sort of a um, mechanical means of getting partnering done, but also has this maybe artistic capacity for um, transmitting emotion and um, feelings. And you talked, Sarah, about the um, explicit tools that you gained from your background in communication in terms of discussing consent. Could, um, do you have any examples? Could you clarify what, what those are, those explicit tools from communication? Well, the first thing I would say is just um, 
like the consent contract itself is an example of an explicit tool. So it's a it's a physical document um, that students all had a copy of, and um, by setting up the structure of the course to begin before we even dance working with this document and talking about what the words in this document mean not just assuming that we all know what they mean but talking about an explicit definition for what consent is and what consent looks like and um, whether discussing for example whether or not it's appropriate while we're improvising for us to come up behind someone and touch them if they don't see us coming towards them and us coming to a conclusion as a group about whether or not we're gonna allow that. That type of explicit communication and getting into that specific detail, I think. Um, I'm not sure how people without a communication background would approach that, but for me, that that feels obvious that mm -hmm. we should and, should and could talk about that. And I think even like clarifying what consent is, of course, is something that we're right. seeing in the zeitgeist right now is like really very complicated. And so, right talking through that. that i would argue that there there isn't ever going to be a single definition for things like this but that our goal was to create a definition for this classroom for these students at this time that we can all agree to abide by and not assume that it will necessarily translate outside mm -hmm. and when you so you really spent the first two classes not dancing and just really working with the document correct um and then you're talking about risk-taking and um, communication, which of course are just such great functional tools for life. And you feel like the students engaged ultimately in more risk-taking um, once you establish these ground rules, is that right? Correct. Um, so we really, I mean, we had to get them used to touching one another first and foremost, because that's just an inherent part of partnering. And so we recognized that even before we had, we took people into the air or off of the ground or had any kind of open kinetic chain in a partnering situation, um, that we live in a low touch society. And these are young people in our low touch society that need to, to figure out how to touch one another without having um, without, with being able to compartmentalize the sexual connotation that sometimes comes with touching. So, um, so that's where a lot of the touch research came in and using that touch as a form of support and consent and agreement, mutual agreement to then be able to establish a quick and effective comfort with your partner before going into more calculated risks. So, and the other thing to mention here is that we had a really mixed bag of, ability levels. So we, and we recognize that every single time we came into the classroom, that not only did we have different ability levels and different experience levels, but that in each day there's something stressful or something, um, like we just had different bodies each time we met, uh, regardless of ability level. So Sarah and I worked really hard to assess the classroom situation because at this point we're not just dance teachers, we're also approaching this as Pilates teachers and somatic practitioners who are really working with the bodies who are showing up in the room that day, um, working with bodies, not on bodies. <clears throat> so I think that given that kind of um, addressing of each individual ability level, that that they did progress, they did take risks. Like we had dancers who couldn't even be, even think about being lifted into the air, moved one to tears. I mean, I think. Yeah. The um, first time she tried a, a sort of open kinetic chain lift, she sort of panicked and cried and um, 
like had to kind of remove herself from the class a little bit Mm -hmm. before she could re-engage. But then we have people who want to be like, you know, flipping over backwards (laughs) and stuff like that. Um, So, you know, how do you combine those two experience levels? So I think that overall it was very successful because by the end of the class, this um, student who could not be lifted, who did experience panic by the end was being lifted and was being, um, allowing herself to trust in a partner and establish that kind of trust. So I feel like in that sense, it was successful. And then we were able to provide an environment where more advanced dancers could experiment. We could kind of like drop tidbits in and they could communicate with one another and work out how that lift was going to work. Um, so with our combined experience levels in the classroom, I think that it was very successful in bringing everybody to a point where they could could do their, do their own adventure in the risk-taking department. That's great. Um, and so were the, these were um, dance majors or non-dance majors, or who, who was your population uh, for this class? It, it was a mix. So we, I, I think we had about half of them were musical theater majors who do take dance classes as part of their curriculum. Uh, there was a good portion of them that were dance majors, and there were a few non-majors as well who just take dance classes while they're in school. So everyone was coming from a really different background. And in fact, we, we noticed some different ways that their differences in trainings encourage them to engage with the work. And I, it's partially why I think this explicit communication about touch and consent kind of helped everyone get on the same page because, you know, the people with a lot of acting training were pretty comfortable dropping into touch and presence with one another. But were maybe less familiar with the physical aspect and that was sort of flipped for the people who have more dance training, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, So it kind of helped everybody get on the same page being this explicit and moving this, um, what's the word that I want? Moving this um, particularly, being really specific and particular about exactly how we're going to touch each other and how you begin touch and how you're going to disengage from touch and how you're going to even breathe with your partner, little thing like that. And also it's like that um, matter of rigor. Also, it sounds like, you know, you said particular, but also like not just enhancing the physical rigor of the partnering, but, you know, the, the rigorous investigation right. of all that surrounds partnering. Right. And actually, while Brittany and I were prepping for this, we, we maybe realized a, a sort of like personal goal that we had in this class that we, we hadn't actually realized until after the fact. And we're, you know, talking about it now and reviewing the experience. But Brittany and I also make creative work together. We, we co-choreograph frequently. And to some extent, we were looking for dancers who have that emotional and mental rigor that we worked on in this class. And we sort of wondered if like, without realizing we were just trying to make dancers that we want to work with. Yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, yeah, fair enough. <laughs> and I think it's worth mentioning that touching regularly was part of our warm-up as well, a huge part of our warm-up. We had some um, physical strength building components um, as well as, uh, and they could choose to engage or not engage with it, but uh, like some things from time thought, so just like some basic compression and tuning in with the body that you would be partnering with. Um, so that was also part of the rigor, that they touched each other, should they choose to, every single day before we got into any kind of 
difficult partnering or lifting, um, just subjecting themselves to touch and consent every single time um, was part of it, part of the class. Um, you talked about students requesting to revisit the contract. Mm-hmm. Um, what would provoke that and what did it look like and what other ways did the course sort of evolve and transmorph sure. over the semester? One thing that comes to mind is um, as they got more comfortable, we included improv jams at the end of each class session. And there was one day where the improv jam became a large group. So like there were large, it was a large sort of mosh pit. Yeah. (laughs) Mosh pit of people. Right. And um, as soon as it was over, we had a couple students ask if we could pull out the contract and revisit group partnering because they felt pressured to be in the group because everyone was there, even though they, once they got into it, they felt uncomfortable and they didn't feel like they had a way out. Um, And so we came up with some more explicit ways. You know, if you're partnering with more than one person and you want to invite a third or fourth or fifth or 20th in, um, some more explicit ways to invite people in so that people people can feel that sense of invitation and then through that be given the opportunity to decline instead of find themselves in a position that they don't know how to get themselves out of because mm-hmm. they don't know how they even got there. That's, again, like this nuance of the difference between feeling invited versus feeling pressured, that there's right. like a big distinction there even though it might not look all that different from the outside. Right. right. Um. And yeah, when you you talked about the practicing saying no at DSSE, I loved that. And I had recently come off of a um, mental health first aid training. And in that, we were asked to practice asking someone if they had suicidal thoughts um, because the idea was that it's you can say that you'll do that, but it's such a hard thing to actually say to another human being that you need to practice it. And um, so I just, I love this idea. You know, we live in such a um, complicit field, I think, in dance. By nature, we're kind of known as being agreeable and um, like soldiers, you know, quietly do your job and do what's asked of you and say yes, say yes, say yes. And um so I think particularly with dancers for, and you know, for many other people in our society for various reasons, like saying no is harder than it seems. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, going back to that idea of, of rigor, um, we made that a rigorous part of the class. Like where the class didn't have a whole lot of um, you know, technical rigor. We weren't going to like make them plie 50 times every, every day, but we mm-hmm. did make them touch each other and say no every single class. Yeah. And, um, part of, part of the warm up included like a light contact improv and you had to, or the students had to practice, um, or were invited to practice, uh, engaging with a partner and also declining a dance every time we yeah. did that. So it just was part of their regular practice to say no and so it was practice on both ends sorry go ahead it's just a minute. I was gonna say it's, it's structured into the warm-up that as part of the warm-up as they're walking around finding a partner for the next portion of the warm-up they had to say no to at least one person every day mm-hmm. and, and so you had, sorry go ahead you're also desensitizing people you said 
early on you talked about you know not taking it personally and so you're also helping people become less sensitive to being turned down right 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 exactly and the fact that we just kind of gave it this blessing of like this is a regular part of the practice i think that they were more willing to to just release it as a personal affront if the if the dance was declined right and also when we talk about the progressive way that we presented the movements that we were doing in each class, we also offered, you know, on the scale of risk taking that they could choose, we offered options to partner with the wall or partner with the floor or do sort of like an imagined solo experience of that as the low risk options. And so because it was presented each time as part of the progression of the exercise, it, it's just part of one of the options you might choose. That's great. And did you get feed, feedback from students? Did they tell you, did they, I mean, to me, this sounds kind of profound. And did they pick up on that? Or did it seem like just get, a, you know, another dance class to them? How did they react? I think that it, um, in the, in the, in the incubator, I'll call it, <laughs> um, I feel like there was always something profound going on um, and that there was always some kind of breakthrough. I feel like I saw at least one face every class that was like, oh, <laughs> yes. Like, you know, and it's beautiful to watch. Everybody was always having an experience in the classroom um, because I think of the dual nature of like emotional and physical. And we never let the class stray from that, that it was always a check in with yourself, kind of a self-reflection, a social reflection and a physical reflection. Um, and then there was just some really beautiful things that happened. We mentioned the student who could not even be lifted at the beginning of the semester for fear of panic. Um, and then watching her beautiful progression into being lifted. Um, at the end, when we engaged in because it's something else we did, we constantly checked in. We had like these big group conversations every time. <laughs> so everybody felt free to speak up and talk about their experience and really give us feedback as well. Um, and we totally acknowledge that that is unorthodox in our, <laughs> in our teaching methods, that we really do create like a pretty um, two-way environment in the classroom. Um, but at the end, one dancer um, mentioned that she felt comfortable saying no when it came to issues of her body, maybe for the first time. And that was like, tear jerking, of course, but also just a moment that was very profound, I think, for us teachers. And when she said it, I feel like it was so matter of fact. Yeah, she just just sort of was like, I don't don't like getting hugs. I don't like being touched in general. And it's never even occurred to me that I can say no until now. And then on the opposite end of that, students who are very high touch and enjoy touch a lot felt more comfortable kind of owning that and understanding their place. So I feel like um, we have a couple of students that just really like to be touched and like to touch other people and um, kind of had their own anxiety about that. Like, oh, I like to be close to people, but I know that personal bubbles exist. And so mm-hmm. I feel kind of bound up, you know, and I can't touch. And so this idea of consent and like asking and creating a relationship in which you can touch people and, and it's and you can kind of remove that any like societal connotations of it. Um, through your own agency and your own conversation with the individual. I think that made them feel more comfortable in their own skin. So it kind of was on both both ends. And of, of course, there, not to assume that a, this particular pedagogy works for every student or even 
for every student in every situation. There's certainly some that we got some feedback would have preferred a little bit more of a classical approach to partnering, you know, and um, there are many reasons why that may have been more valuable to the students. Um, so it's, it's not to say that we're approaching this from a, like, this is the best. Everyone should do mm -hmm. this. Standpoint. New requirements for partnering. <laughs> yeah, not, a, not at all. This is, you know, I think I sort of alluded to it before, but this is the way Brittany and I work creatively. So it makes sense that it would bleed over into our pedagogy. Um, it's also a part of both of our research practices. And so, again, you know, we were somatic practitioners. So it's unsurprising that we integrate all these aspects of our lives together and these ideas come up in our pedagogy. Yeah, I mean, to that, to that end, I, you know, I love this project. And, but I do think about how, you know, is this transferable to a broader dance world? You know, because like you're saying, there are those students who like a more classical approach, and there are professionals who like a more oh. classical approach, and for whom this would seem like a reach, you know, this is, this is like an academic postmodern reality. But, you know, there's so many other ways that the dance world exists, <clears throat> you know. The good news is yeah. that I live in an academic postmodern reality, right. so it, it works great for me. Exactly, exactly, <laughs> exactly. But, you know, there's a lot of the dance world out there, either through cultural right. norms or genre traditions, you know, that are really hierarchical and patriarchal and um, where dancers, you know, are still expected to do what's asked of them with little questioning. So... Are there components of this that you think even while you're not mandating this for all partnering, like are there components that you think really are very transferable and maybe could be squeezed into even the more traditional um, divisions of our, our field? Um, I think this is such an interesting question and it's, it's one that made us think um, really about what we were doing in the classroom because it, it's such a good point. Um, but it, and eventually I have to land on that I don't, I never saw it as um, something that would seep out into the dance world from, the, from academia. I actually see it as something that seeped into academia from the dance world because mm. I come from a cultural from and social world a cultural and social dance background, not necessarily a white Western classical background. Um, so this idea of creating community and communication in dance um, is not something new to, to me or Sarah in our research. So, um, so it, when we created the course, it, it didn't really seem like, Oh, we're going <laughs> to, like, you know, to be involved in, in all of these classical forms because we borrowed it actually from, from more social, and cultural forms um, initially this this idea of communicating with one another and creating a community in the classroom um, and the other thing is that yeah I think in our creative work and in our pedagogical work we are dancer centered and student centered and that is a huge priority because um, I think of the individualistic nature of the choreography that we make and the connective nature of the choreography that we make. So as Sarah was mentioning earlier, it is more efficient for us. It's kind of like a selfish vacuum that we're walking. <laughs> like it's more of it. Not kind of. It's totally It's totally, selfish. totally. But um, it's more efficient for us in our work to have dancers who can communicate with one another and calculate their own physical risks and communicate with us what they need. Because we feel like the 
um, we pull richer performances from them that way. And the work kind of creates its own little community and environment on stage. So, so this pedagogical approach really, really works for us. I think as far as transferring it into a greater context, like, of course, there are places where dancers are going to have to go and work and be the soldier. And that is something that's not going to change for a very, very long time in our form. We are trying to change it. And I think that there's a lot of conversation around changing it, but it is the way we operate. We're kind of behind the eight ball in that mm-hmm. way. So, um, but if we can give the individual dancers something to make themselves feel comfortable and make themselves feel comforted in that environment, should they so choose to operate in that environment when they go out into the greater world, um, I think that that's really beneficial. If they can check in with themselves, if they can somaticize their experience and create a, a more somatic practice, even within those more structured environments, I think that that's a win. And really, our interest is not in going out and changing the face of dance because, <laughs> the, because the students are going to do that. Students yeah. are going to do that. They're going to push it forward. So it's our job in academia to create the environment in which these people can question, these like young, beautiful, amazing professionals can question rigorously the constructs that they operate in in the outside world, and then they go out and change it. And we're just an incubator for that to happen. I'll also say that, um, so in my role at Missouri State, I, I don't only work with concert dance. I, um, I work with musical theater as well, where I'm on that short timetable and I need big flashy numbers and high mm-hmm. kicks. You, know? <laughs> you can't and, spend uh, two days working on a contract. No, yeah, like I don't have time for that. Right. Like, and a lot of the dancers in this class have worked with me both in concert dance and in musical theater. Mm-hmm. And... I see this type of working style for myself as valuable in both contexts. So in the musical theater land where I have two weeks to put up the whole show and we're not going to go back and check in with if things are going to work or not, I like to cap the dancers who will allow me to focus on the work in the big picture and I can trust them to focus on themselves mm-hmm. and, ac- and accomplish the intent of the choreography if they need to adapt something slightly for their bodies for safety for whatever and just say to me hey that's not going to work because of this thing but I got a plan I'm going to do it and I'll say great I don't have room in my brain for that thank you <laughs> goodbye right. you know looks like, good <laughs> looks great so yes in concert dances as I, I work with Brittany a lot in the concert dance realm everything we talked about we want those dancers to deeply investigate and we'll spend two days talking about how we're going to touch each other in this piece and you know all of those things but I don't always work that way either and I see this as being valuable in all the contexts for me yeah I really um you know I teach kinesiology and I started using these ideas a little bit from from your talk you know I mean it's on one, awesome. on one note, I feel so socially aware of this stuff that's going on, but, you know, there's a big jump for it to sometimes get into your practice. And so, you know, just like palpating shoulders, I have a room full of dance majors. I know they touch each other. I know they get touched as right. part of, you know, th- how they how their education is functioning. So I'm assuming that they're okay with somebody putting their hand on their shoulder. And on the other hand, I'm teaching college students in a time that's really, um, 
dynamic and interesting and exciting and tumultuous. And I'm like, oh, I don't need to make that assumption, even if I feel quite confident in it. I can also use this as a teaching moment to remind them that you ask people before you touch them and you give consent before you get touched, (laughs) you know? And so, you know, just saying like, you know, hey, I know that's, you know, just ask your partner, do you mind if I touch your shoulder? And if you're okay with that, say yes. And then, you know, and so that was helpful just to bring that little thing into, into my kinesiology class. Um, So thank you for that. That's exciting. Yeah, really exciting. I think that we, in this time, dancers sit at such a, in such an interesting place because we make our art with our bodies and the dancing body um, represents so much. It can be an act of protest. Um, it can be an act of defiance. It can be an act of love. And I think that that's something worth really investigating that whether we like it or not in this time, in this place, dancers have a social and a political role to play just by nature of what we do. Absolutely. Yeah. And I often, yeah, this is going somewhere else, but I mean, I often feel like that's the point, <laughs> you know, like, yeah. it's, like it, yeah, it's I mean, not, I mean, the pieces are nice too. It's nice to see nice dance works, but yeah. it's also like the world needs dancers. It sometimes needs dance also, but it like it, the world needs people who are sensitive and aware of the body and, the potential of the body and the expressivity of it. I would argue from a communication standpoint, even if your plan is to just make nice dancing, your nice dancing isn't ever going to exist outside of the context in which it's seen, which includes things like the Me Too movement Mm -hmm. swirling all around Mm -hmm. us all the time. Mm -hmm. Yep. Um, Are you going to teach this class again? Does it have a future or what's what's the next step for you? Um, I am excited for Brittany and devastated for myself that <laughs> that she will likely be leaving Springfield to go off and do big things in grad school and get an MFA and I will not have her with me next round of this class but I will be teaching it and um, my plan is to hopefully ask a student who took the class last time to be the assistant this time through so and I'll be really nosy about the process and probably from afar give all of my feedback. <laughs> You're going to want to be Skyped into every class. Yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. And do you have any change? Is there anything you're going to change or evolve or um, modify, do you think? Or The interesting thing is the, the feeling of teaching this class is actually feels like we're changing and evolving and modifying in the moment all the time. Mm-hmm. Um. So, yeah, we would come into each class with an idea of what we would do and some pro- progressions planned, but we, we they had a set warm-up, and we would use their warm-up time to watch them and decide kind of how they were bringing themselves to the room that day and how we were going to adapt. We, I don't think, ever taught the class exactly as we planned on any given day. Yeah. Like, we came in as body workers in the classroom. Yeah. I really feel that way. Um that we assessed the bodies we had in the classroom every time. And we're very willing to change our plan based on that. Like so, Sarah said. So with that in mind, I, I think that that, uh, that approach necessitates evolving, but not, I can't plan that evolution. So I don't know who's in the class or how they're bringing themselves to the room on any given day. We'll have similar, I'll have similar goals next time I teach it, but I'll do the same thing and come at it from a bodywork standpoint and check in with, 
who comes to the room that day with no expectation based on what I've seen from that person previously or what I imagine could be possible and just be present with them. And these things change too, like generationally. I mean, I remember like five years ago, even asking students to improv was Mm. a big ask and now they love it just in five years, you know, like there's been this cultural shift in sort of what's normal to them. So it'll be interesting to see if um, what was once sort of profound and unique um, Mm -hmm. becomes sort of like expected. Right. Mm -hmm. And of course, like, you know, we're able to do this because generations of people before us did all the baby steps to get us to here. Right. So who knows, you know, this class is on our schedule every other year. So mm-hmm. a year from now, I'll be starting the next iteration. And who knows how many people will, you know, who I'll encounter at a conference that'll slightly change my approach and what information Brittany's going to get when she starts grad school and just be sending me directions on the next <laughs> round of this, you know? Um, it's, what we're doing is a conglomeration of everything we've encountered it's an integrated somatic practice from our entire lives not just from dance technique so it will change the more information we encounter as you change yeah yeah um is there anything else that we haven't covered that you want to share with our audience or express about this experience no, just a lot of gratitude for letting us come and talk about it. We were really excited about it and it was a really wonderful experience and we just and I think that it's worth mentioning that none of it is possible without willing students who are just game and up like game for anything really. We've got an amazing group of people here. So um so thanks to them as well. Yeah. Excellent. Um, Thank you so much for doing this. I love, as I've said, I love this project and the way you talk about it. And it really has opened things up for me. And I hope that other people, you know, think twice as they grab a hand or a foot or a shoulder or a back and, you know, just elevate their conscientiousness about that. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Take care. You too. Bye. Bye. On behalf of Marissa and myself, I, Ellie Kushner, want to say thank you to all of our listeners for joining us on this episode of Dance Well Podcast. Like what you hear? Go to iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud and search Dance Well Podcast to subscribe. You can also view all of our episodes and learn more about our podcast by visiting www.dancewellpodcast.com. We wouldn't be where we are without generous contributions from our listeners. Your contributions help pay for our SoundCloud membership, website fees, and upgrades, and our recording technology. If you would like to make a contribution to DanceWell, please follow the link in the description of this podcast to visit our GoFundMe page. We thank you in advance for your support, and lastly, if you have questions or want to get in touch, email us at dancewellpodcast at gmail.com. Bye!